I want you to, when you hear, when you hear the word wealth, what comes to your mind? Mansions, money. What did you say? Yes, please. Yeah, what else? Bank accounts. Yeah. An abundance. Financial planners. Freedom. So that, that came from you, Justin? Yes. Power. Yeah. When you, when you think of wealth um, or even think of a wealthy person, um, is it positive? Is it negative? Or is it neutral kind of terms that you think of? Depends on the person. Like, what? Give me an example. What would? What do you think that would? What would it depend on? Philanthropists. I think that's what I would say too. Okay. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Any other thoughts on that? Hmm. Okay, so yeah, so maybe wealth then equates unhealthiness a lot of times, right? Yeah. But then we may join with Matt and still say, even knowing that, yes, please, right? We'll, we'll take a little bit of that unhappiness, right? I don't know. Well, hey, James has some thoughts on this as well. And so we're gonna, we're gonna look at this, James 5, verses one through six. And I just want to prepare you ahead of time that uh, this is a tough passage, um, it, it's hard to read, it's hard uh, to, to hear, it may step on some of your toes, um, but this is the word of God and we need to hear it. And I believe that no matter where you're at this morning, every single one of us can relate at some level and can be taught by the spirit of God through his word this morning. And so that's what we're gonna ask, is that the spirit would be generous, that we would hear his word this morning and it would change us by God's grace to be the men and women he desires us to be. So I'm gonna invite you to stand with me in all of God's word as we read verses one through six of chapter five. And this is James writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury, and in self-indulgence, you will fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. Father, we ask this morning as we try to tackle this difficult passage, God, again, that we would hear clearly what you would have to say to us. God, give us ears to hear Enlighten the eyes of our heart to know and understand what you are teaching us. 
Father, set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. Amen. So that's the end of the sermon. We'll see you guys next week. Um, do whatever you want with that. No, um, man, this is harsh, right? This is super harsh. In fact, um, it's so difficult that many commentators who write about this passage really believe that James was not writing to Christians, that he was actually just writing to wealthy landowners who were oppressing the least, the lost, the left out, the very poor, and that there's absolutely no way that James could have written such harsh words to the people of God. Um, I could see some of that, but I take the, the position that uh, others do that James is indeed writing to wealthy Christians. If we remember the context of James, verse one of chapter one, who's James writing to? The Christians the 12 tribes and the dispersion, right? So these Christians who have been scattered all throughout the region of Palestine and beyond because of persecution. So he's writing to Christians. So no doubt there are wealthy Christians within the church that need to hear this. And not only do the wealthy Christians need to hear this, but the poor need to hear this as well. In fact, next week we'll be looking at the section after this where James is talking to the poor as well and showing them what they need to know and how they are to grow as well in that. But what we need to remember is James's goal throughout this letter is that the Christian community would become a people who are whole and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James's goal, and, and James knows that the way that Christians treat each other and the way that Christians live with one another is a demonstration to the world of who God is and what he is like. That's why James is so, seems so angry often throughout this letter is because he sees these things happening in the church that is completely antithetical to God's law of love. We've already tackled some of these, right? He says, no favoritism in the church, no prejudice, no racial injustice, no hurtful words that will tear down one another made in the image of God. Get rid of it. It is not to be anywhere near the church family. And so we see that James gets upset because he sees this happening, that the Christians in the church are living like this and it breaks his heart. And it breaks God's heart because he knows that when Christians act like that, that the world is seeing and hearing a lie about him. And so James is very passionate in this passage because he sees that there are wealthy Christians who are taking advantage of the poor. And when they do that, they're telling the world a lie about God. And so the idea for us, as we've called this series, Faith in the Flesh, is how do we live out our faith in the everyday stuff of life? It looks like this, that faith in God lived out means that we see wealth as a conduit for blessing, not a reservoir to satisfy ourselves. That when we live in faith, we see wealth as a conduit of blessing others, not as a reservoir to satisfy ourselves. So let's tackle this passage. We're gonna look at verse one. We're gonna go verse by verse through 
what James is telling us here. Verse one, he says, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So let me ask you, is James condemning wealth here? I mean, is he saying it's wrong to be wealthy? No. No, he's not, he's not saying that it's wrong to be wealthy. In fact, if we know our scripture, and as, as James certainly would have, we've seen all throughout the story of God that there are many, many women and men who have abundant wealth. King David, as he's dedicating the, the temple and getting ready to um, uh, anoint his son Solomon to be the future king, he writes this, and he states this in the assembly of the people gathered. First Chronicles 29, 11, he says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. That's some good stuff. The king of the world, majesty and power belong all to him. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Yeah, God is the giver of wealth. He's the giver of all good things. In fact, we've seen in James, James even said that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God, including wealth. So James, let's just get that right, just clear that out right from the very beginning. James is not against wealth. What James is against is the wrong attitude that comes often, as our brother said over here, unhealth, oftentimes with wealth. It's the misuse of wealth. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in, in 1 Timothy, he writes this to his protege, Timothy, about wealth. He says, in verse six of 1 Timothy 6, now there is great gain in godliness, with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Okay, did you bring anything in with you when you were born? And we're not taking anything with us when we leave this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. When's the last time you said that? If I just had food and clothing, I'm good. I'm super, that's all I need. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Get this, listen clear, clearly. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not money itself, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So the idea here is that it's not a bad thing to be wealthy. It's how do we use it? Do we see our wealth as a conduit for blessing others or do we look at wealth as the opportunity to create this reservoir, this uh, accumulation 
to satisfy myself. Now, you may be saying, well, wait a minute, that sounds really good, um, but I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy, right? Anybody ever feel that? I mean, we can look around, compare ourselves to anybody else and find somebody wealthier than we are. Let me, let me just give you some statistics, and I know about statistics, but this was pretty interesting this week, that the United Nations in 2016, their, their report on human development about the, the riches and the poverty of the world said that 32% of the world's population lives on less than $3.10 a day. And of that 32%, 766 billion, that's a billion, people live on less than $1.90 a day. Little bit more statistics that kind of hit home that if you have an average annual salary of $40,000 and the average salary in the United States is 44,000, unless you're a teacher, <laughs> red for Ed, okay, sorry. Um, but if, if, if you make $40,000, you are in the top 2% of the richest people in the world. $40,000. And if you're in the top 1% of the richest people in the world, which is an annual salary of $55,000, you, along with everyone else in that category, own 46% of global wealth. That's crazy. And somebody surely has... These statistics always go and say, well, that's relative, right? I mean, some, you know, where we find ourselves and, and that's true. But here's just what I want you to think and, and, and gather is that we are a rich people where I can order something on Amazon and have it in two days. And if I'm lucky, maybe even the same day. I can go to Costco and I can get whatever I want at any time. As I was studying uh, for this this week, I ran uh, across this blog post of a pastor who says that Twice a week when he goes out to take out his trash, he thanks God for how much he has. That's pretty significant when you consider that a third of the world's food is wasted a year. We are rich people. Our salaries may vary. Our resources may differ, but we are rich. We are rich. And so James here is echoing Paul, this this idea, and he says, weep and wail, weep and howl. It's this idea of repent, realize how much you have, and realize that someday you and I, every single one of us will stand before God and we will give an account of what we have done, good or bad, the scriptures say. And James is warning the wealthy Christians and saying, if you misuse your wealth and you use it to satisfy yourself and not to bless others, there will be judgment coming. Weep and howl and repent and turn to God. Well, James tells us that these wealthy Landowners, these wealthy Christians, there's, there's three things that they're really doing to create these reservoirs to satisfy themselves. They are hoarding wastefully, or wasteful hoarding. Second, there's economic oppression that they're involved in. And third, 
they're living in a luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyle. Let's tackle the first one. Wasteful hoarding, verse two. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, just real quickly, James is not condemning saving. Okay, I mean, there is wisdom and we see that all through scripture, especially in the Proverbs. And we know that James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. There is wisdom in saving for emergencies. There's wisdom in saving for things that you need. Wisdom for saving for how you're going to bless. That's not what James is condemning here. He's condemning this hoarding, this accumulation that you have and do for yourself and for no one else. And he says, these material things on earth, they're going to corrode. Your clothes are going to be moth-eaten. They're going to fade away. You can't, as we already read that scripture, you can't take it with you. You brought nothing into the world, you're not going to take it out. And so there's a couple of things that I'm thinking through here is that things rot and corrode when they're not being used. And and. I tell you, we, we, Chris and I say this often when we're prepping for a sermon where God really convicts us. I'm thinking about how much stuff I have that just sits around and I'm not using it for anybody. You know, it only seems like in our culture that we, we have our expensive vehicles outside of our carport and then a bunch of junk in the garage. That's not always true, but often, And there's stuff that we have that we accumulate that we're just not using. We're not using for the blessing of others. And we all have different ways of thinking about this, but things will rot and corrode eventually, but they'll rot and corrode, especially if they're not being used for the blessing of other people. The other thought out of this passage here in this verse is the fact that when we hoard things, it's materialism gripping our heart instead of God. Wasteful hoarding. Let me ask you, family, what do you do with what you have? Are you clinging on to things and refusing to release what you have for the blessing of other people? And maybe for you, this idea of, of hoarding and refusing to, to bless others instead of you, you're using your things to satisfy yourself. And maybe it's because you're, you're fearful. You're afraid of losing what you have. Or, or maybe you're afraid uh, that you won't have something down the road. I had a good friend in high school and he lived with his grandmother and his grandfather. And his grandfather went, uh, lived through the Great Depression. And I'd go over to my friend's house and his grandfather had like all these jars throughout his whole house just filled with coins and stuff everywhere. And I remember having to buy my friend lunch all the time because his grandfather wouldn't give him money for lunch. And it was this idea that his grandfather was so afraid of losing 
what he had, he had lived through that. It was that fear. And some of you, you may have lived through that. You know what poverty is like. You know what it, it, it feels like to not go with something. And so this idea is like, I'm not going to lose what I have. I'm afraid of that. And instead of trusting God to be your provider, you're trusting in yourself to try to strategize in a plan. Or maybe it's, you're, you're afraid uh, uh, or you want to hoard because it's pride. Because you, you think it's like, hey, the more I get, the better I feel about myself. And, and when I compare myself to this person, I feel a lot better if I have as much as she does. Or I even feel better if I can get more than he has. And so what happens is then you start finding your significance and things that you own instead of finding your significance in God. And what's happened is you've exchanged the truth of God for a lie trying to see that, no, my identity and my significance is found in what I have instead of found in Jesus who says, I have everything I need in him. Or maybe it's this insatiable lust for more, this greed, that I gotta have more and more and more. I got this hunger in my heart and so I have to consume and I need more and more and so I need, I need more outfits. Uh, or if you're in my family, they make this joke that I need more hats. I have too many hats, I'll admit it but I love hats. But we just need more. We feel like, hey, there's this, this hole in my heart. I need more and more. And maybe it's not shopping. Maybe it's eating. Maybe it's drinking. We exchange the truth of who we are and what we have in Jesus for a lie. And therefore we hoard. Jesus writing in Matthew to his disciples, Matthew 6, 19, he writes, he says this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And what Jesus means here in this passage is when we lay up treasures for ourselves, we're basically saying everything we have, everything we own is not to satisfy ourselves, it's to bless. It's to give generously and joyously of our time and our resources and our money for the glory of God's kingdom here on earth. Laying up treasures means that I see that Jesus is the ultimate satisfaction of my life, not things. Laying up treasures in heaven means that I see what I have here on earth as not belonging to me, but belonging to God, but given to me so that I might bless other people and point them to the one who gives all riches. Why is this important? Why does this matter? Because where your treasure is, is where your worship is. And what you worship is that which you cherish, which you value, that what, what captivates you. Years ago when I was at a SOMA and we're part of the Soma family of churches and I was at a Soma school training and a pastor was sharing a story and he had just bought a brand new convertible car for his son. 
my son's not, well, one of my sons are in here, don't get any ideas. And so he went, was, went driving with his kid and, and uh, his kid was driving this car and he says to his dad, he goes, I love this car. And his dad said, pull over to the side. And they pulled over to the side and his dad said, son, we don't love things. We love people. We use things. And if you get those confused, then you'll start using people to love things. And he goes, son, I wanna use this car to love you. Let me ask you, where's the treasure in your heart? What are you captivated by? Are you using things or loving things? Are you using people or loving people? And James is calling us to be a people who see our wealth, our resources as a conduit of blessing. James says that the other thing that these wealthy Christians are doing is they're causing this economic oppression among the poor. Verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so just a little bit of background, just so you have an idea of what the, what the poor endured in this time, and in first century, is that the poor who are working in these fields relied on their wages every single day because they had to buy food every single day. They didn't have the great refrigerators that we have. They didn't have the, the means of keeping things. They needed their food every single day to purchase, or they needed the money every day to purchase the food. And so for whatever reason, James doesn't tell us, but these landowners, these wealthy Christians were defrauding them. They were keeping it back. They weren't paying these landowners, what they are these workers, what they needed. They were cheating them out of their wage. And, and you may say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I'm not a landowner. How does this relate to me? Let me ask you, if, are you a boss? And do you have employees? Do you pay them well? Do you pay them on time? Do you owe a debt to anyone? Have you made attempts to pay it back? And I want to even go further as I was thinking about this, the way we pay other people. I was just even thinking about the way we tip people. Are we paying people generously for the work that they're doing? It's like, what if, what if we were a people who were known for incredible radical generosity? It's like we leave on a Sunday and we go with our missional community or we grab some people and we go to a restaurant and we just tip them and they're blown away and they go, those people could come every Sunday and eat. It's just this, this idea of economic justice. And those are just little things, but I was just really absorbed this week of thinking even beyond, trying to think beyond myself to the injustices going on in the world economically. And don't miss this. This is what James says. He says, listen, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
There's only two times in the New Testament where this title is given to God. One of them is here. The Lord of hosts means the almighty who fights for his people. And the idea around this is that God will bring justice to the poor. God will bring justice to those who are oppressed. Family, this is good news. This is good news even for some of us who feel like, man, I feel oppressed in many ways. That God hears the cries. When I watch the news and I think of the men, women, and children in Syria and beyond from just all over who are just being oppressed because of religion or because of their sex or, or whatever it is, that God hears the cries. He's a God of justice and he will answer. And so we say, God, restore and heal and help the broken, the lost, the least, the left out. But it's not just that we sit back and we go, this is what you're gonna do, but the call is for us as the church to stand against it. To stand against the economic injustice that we see in individuals. And not just in individuals, but in the systemic structures in our world that oppress the poor. And I'm gonna be honest with you. I'm not sure how best to do that. I've been praying about it all week. And if we had more time, I'd love to dialogue through that but I encourage you to think through that with me. You know, it might start some, just uh, uh, what I'm hearing the Spirit just tell me is to start small. It's like, do you know where your shoes are being made? People that are making your clothes, are they getting a fair wage? What about the coffee you drink or the furniture that you buy or any sort of product that we bring into our homes? Is there economic justice and equality? And if not, what are we doing about it? I think this is a call for us as the men and women of God is not sit back and say, well, God, you just take care of that. But say, Jesus, empower us. What can we do? to bring your good justice to bear. The last thing James said these wealthy Christians were doing was they were living in a luxurious self-indulgence. They were creating this reservoir of satisfaction for themselves. Verse five, he says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter and you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And the idea here and the Greek, the grammar here, the, what James is writing, it's not just simply living a life of pleasure that these rich Christians are doing, but it's the context that they are living in such a way that they are intently and purposefully oppressing others and giving no thought whatsoever about another human being. And it's wickedness. 
So much so that James is charging these Christians with murder. This language is super strong. And I don't, it could, it could be literal judicial murder here going on, but in Jewish thought, that could be murder. It also could be if you withhold wages from your worker, it could also be considered murder. And if you recall back in chapter four of James, James says, ah, wait a minute, if you have hatred in your hearts towards another human being, that's murder. And it didn't start with James. Where did he get that from? His brother, Jesus. The idea is that if we think that our wealth and our resources, our material things are only for our satisfaction that we hate our brothers and sisters. We hate our brothers and sisters. We hate humanity made in the image of God. There's an ancient church tradition that says that perhaps James had a double meaning here in verse six, that the righteous landowner, or I'm sorry, the righteous laborer, the, 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 the poor person that seems James is talking about, that the double meaning could be that the righteous person was Jesus himself. The one who was betrayed by one of his own, who loved money more than Jesus. For 30 pieces of silver, Jesus betrayed and then humiliated and beaten and hung on a cross for sinners. And he didn't resist it. He didn't resist death because he knew that his death was the only means of grace to bring us into God's favor, to bring us into God's family. That Jesus, the righteous one who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteous one. The idea of that is that we, when we come to faith in Jesus and believe that, we are now right in God's eyes. We now have favor with God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That Jesus, who was rich, as the king of the world, the almighty, the magnificent one that we read in First Chronicles, he who was rich, the king of the world, became poor, taking on flesh, going to a cross and dying for us. He became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. We have the rich the riches of his forgiveness. We have the riches of his love. We have the riches of his salvation. We have the riches of his grace. And his grace is greater than our sin. James wrote that in chapter four, is that God gives more grace to us. This is the beauty of the good news, the gospel. That means that there is, you can't be so greedy that Jesus can't overcome that greed and save you. You can't hoard so much that you can outrun the grace of Jesus. 
You can't seek to satisfy yourself with wealth so much or whatever it looks like that the goodness of God can't forgive you from your sin and save you and satisfy you with him. The grace of God is greater than our sin, but we should feel it. And it should make us call out like I was doing all week. It's like, God, I need your grace. I need your help. I love things way too much and I love people way too little. And I need your grace because I'm messing it up. Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me. I need you to be the treasure of my heart. Not the things of this world that are gonna rot and corrode because when I follow after that, those things rot and corrode my heart. And Jesus, I need you to satisfy me fully. And James says earlier, we read this before, that if we would draw near to God, he draws near to us. And we need to admit our need for Christ. Where's your heart this morning? What are you chasing after? Is it things or is it Christ? And I pray that the glory of God would shine in your hearts this morning to see him as your all-sufficient treasure. Father, we need you. God, we know that every good gift and every perfect gift has come from you. We know that we are a rich and blessed people and these gifts that you've given us are so good, but so often, God, we turn these good gifts into things that we worship and run after. And it corrodes our heart. And so Jesus, we are pleading with you, give us grace today to see that you are more satisfying than any earthly treasure we could have. And Lord Jesus, that we would see your grace, that out of the flowing of your grace, that that would lead us to be a joyful, giving people who use our things and our wealth to bless others so that they would see the generosity of your grace that you have so freely given us that we may freely give and draw us near to the arms of Jesus. And we ask this in your powerful name, O oh God. Amen.